This week on Myths and Legends, it's the third and final episode in our adaptation of the Nibelungenlied. You'll see a princess decide that the best revenge is, well, way too much revenge. The creature this week is a tiny, invincible toad who can control your mind. But don't worry, he's the best. So cool, and he's definitely not forcing me to say this. This is Myths and Legends, episode 189C. I know it was you. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the podcast, a guy named Siegfried came to the early medieval Germanic kingdom of Burgundy, married the princess, Kriemhild. A dispute arose between Kriemhild, the princess, and Brunhild, the Germanic king Gunther's wife. There's a lot behind that. We won't go into it right now. Gunther and his right-hand man, the general Hagen, found a way to kill the legendary hero Siegfried. And they did. They tricked him to get him on a hunting trip and speared him through the back as he drank from a spring. Now, they have to deal with everyone who loved him, including his smart, ruthless, vengeful wife. terrible loss. Both Hagen and Gunther made a show of weeping openly for their friend. It happened so fast. Bandits! They had been following the king and his men that day. They saw Gunther, Hagen, and Siegfried take off in a race to the spring. And they found their opening. They didn't even know who Siegfried was when they threw the javelin at him. It was pure luck that they hit the one spot on him that could kill him, it seemed. That or... He never actually had horny skin. Who's to say? Hagen, though, avenged his comrade, killing the bandits. It was only too bad that their bodies fell into the Rhine, and they were taken away with the current. A kingdom mourned. Siegfried had saved them all. He was their prince. And he was dead. Kriemhild watched Hagen as he recounted the story for her, her own blood-spattered brother nodding in agreement. Kriemhild was still in shock. But she knew. She knew the hate that burned inside of Brunhild for her husband, Siegfried, and that Hagen was the only one who knew the spot that could harm Siegfried. A bandit got lucky. No one was that lucky. A thought grew in her mind, and no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't dismiss it. She couldn't get rid of it because it made too much sense. Hagen had killed her husband and her own brother was complicit. She took possession of the body of the man she had loved and washed him, commissioning the smiths to make a silver and gold coffin for him, because while you can't take it with you, you can use it to go out in a very tasteful coffin made of precious metals. She scheduled a public viewing and mourned for Siegfried, and then Kriemhild watched. As we know from the very second episode of this podcast, scientifically, if someone has been murdered, and their murderer comes near their dead body, it begins to bleed again. That statement is as true now as it was in the Middle Ages. Kriemhild watched, and as Hagen passed the body, a drop of blood appeared underneath Siegfried's shirt. Kriemhild's eyes locked on Hagen, and the background noise of the room faded. 
All she saw was him. He had done it. He killed her husband, and she would have her revenge. Sigmund, Siegfried's father, and the elder monarch of the Netherlands, had accompanied them to Worms, and he now stood in Kriemhild's quarters. He knew it. She knew it. Everyone with eyes knew that Siegfried had been murdered after the whole wedding night thing. But the people who could kill a man like his son would come after anyone who stood against them. They had to go home and fortify themselves. Kriemhild locked eyes with him. If she left, would there ever be justice for Siegfried? Sigmund said that this wasn't about justice. This was about surviving. And right now they were in the lion's den. If they went home among their own knights, they would at least have a chance. Maybe all this would blow over. Kriemhild looked back to the flurry of activity in her bedroom and ordered her ladies to stop. Sigmund, her father-in-law, was right about one thing. He should go home. Her own son, Gunther, was there. Protect him and keep him from the influence of his namesake. She was staying. There was nothing for her back in the Netherlands. Except for, you know, political power, safety, and oh yeah, her child. Worms was her home, and the corruption had taken root here. She needed to stay and seek justice for her husband, because she knew that if she had been killed, the man she loved wouldn't have rested until her murderers answered for what they did. Kriemhild didn't stay in Worms, not technically. She agreed with her father-in-law that it was a den of lions. Her husband had been murdered, and she didn't have his horny skin. She abandoned the castle on the pretense that it held too many bad memories, and commenced with the construction of her own house, just outside of the city. In truth, it was a fortress. She sold off everything she didn't need, including their fancy outfits, and used what she and Siegfried had brought from the Netherlands to hire as many warriors as she could. She also hired scouts, people to comb the Rhine, looking for something that she herself thought might have only been legendary, looking for the gold of the Nibelungs. Three and a half years, and one angry, captured dwarf later, and they found it. The gold was coming home, and Kriemhild would use it to strike out at her brother and bring justice for her husband. Alrighty, sign here, here, initial here, Albrecht the dwarf said, pointing to the paper. Hey, the next time your husband dies, shoot the person he left guarding his golden text or something. It's not like I've been needlessly sitting in a cave for the past three and a half years. You know, you get the part of the dwarf seeking after the gold and you think, that's major, but I just spent the whole time in a cave. This is the last you're going to see me too. At least in the Volsungs, Regan had a pretty big part betraying the hero and getting his head chopped off. Albrecht was surly as he clicked the quill and tore off the carbon copy of the form. You, you want to get your head chopped off? Kremeld asked. No, no, it wouldn't be the same, Albrecht observed. All right, see ya. Kremeld watched cart after cart being filled from the boats coming down the Rhine. And Hagen and Gunther from the castle were watching her truck gold into her no-doubt Scrooge McDuck-sized vault that she had built underneath her fortress. You know what that's going to be used for? Hagen asked, not giving the king any time to finish. Mercenaries, buying nobles, 
hiring people to kill us. Whoa, us? There's no us, buddy. I'm out. She's talking to me again. She thinks you did it. Gunther turned from the window. It's true. After she found the gold, she started to worry about how she was looking to Gunther and her three other brothers. She couldn't have them suspect a thing. So one morning, she showed up for breakfast. She was cheery and conversant. It was like nothing had ever happened. Gunther didn't know what changed, but very much not wanting it to change back, he rolled with it. Now, Hagen was threatening the tenuous tranquility that had been shattered the day Brunhild confronted Kremhild about not sending them knights or whatever. You say the word, I'll make that gold disappear. She'll have nothing, Hagen offered. Gunther turned back around. No, don't do that. We're done with her, please. She was his sister, and she just wanted to live in peace. Ah, smart, smart. Okay, don't say the word then. You can have deniability. Hagen touched his nose and pointed at the king. Hagen? Okay, okay, okay. How about this? Don't or do say the word, and I will take it as you tacitly or explicitly approving my actions. Hagen thought that that just about covered it. Hagen? Don't do it. I'm serious. I'm seriously saying don't do this. Got it, boss, he said with a wink. Loud and clear. No, like, you only got it if you're not going to do anything, because I don't want you to do anything, Gunther yelled. Say no more, Hagen said as he strode from the room. Hagen, don't do this. Hagen? Hagen did it. Kriemhild and her family traveled that summer to a nearby kingdom for a festival. She was on better terms with her family, and the queen mother had insisted, so she didn't see the harm in leaving for a week or two. But then, at breakfast one morning, she received a panicked message, ordered for her horse to be tacked, and she rode within the hour. When she arrived, she found her fortress sacked. Her warriors were dead. Everyone was dead. And she saw the last of her gold sailing off down the Rhine in unmarked boats. She went to the steward left in charge, Hagen, but found that he had left about a day ago, and the one he left in charge insisted that he didn't know anything about the theft. Hagen returned with a team of men days later on the same day that Gunther came back. He said that he saw people sacking her fortress. He knew he had to do something, so he gave chase, but they were too fast, and they fought too hard. They lost a lot of men, and the gold, the gold was gone. Gunther apologized to his sister and offered her her old room back in the castle. She wouldn't hear it, though. She went back to her fortress, open and full of death, and wondered what she was going to do next. In time, more warriors came for Kriemhild, but not for her money, for her beauty. There was a king in a faraway land one by the name of King Etzel. He had recently lost his queen and heard that the legendarily beautiful, chronically unavailable princess, Kriemhild, was single again. He knew it was a long shot, 
and he knew that he was just the king of a people that had been the terror of much of the known world. But he wanted to know if a girl like her could ever love a warlord like him. Yes, yes, I accept, Kriemhild said. When could they leave? Hagen stood from his place at the right hand of the king. Wait, was this king Attila the Hun? The messengers nodded. They were calling him King Etzel, but yeah, Attila the Hun. Hagen turned to his king. He couldn't possibly say yes to this, right? Gunther threw up his hands. Look, this whole feud between them was getting exhausting. Hagen allegedly killed her husband. She didn't like having her husband allegedly murdered. Both sides were at fault here. But this gave Kriemhild a chance at a fresh start. At love. He wanted his sister to be happy. And also to get her out of worms. This was perfect. This gets her out of here, Hagen said, but also puts her at the head of one of the greatest military forces in the world right now and allies her with a warlord. Gunther shrugged. Okay, so I won't go to Attila's court in Hungary. Look how easy it is to not go to Hungary. I'm doing it right now. If I can bring my sister honor and also get her as far away as possible so this whole ridiculous feud ends, I'm honor bound to do it. So it was done. Of course, the envoy had to swear that Kriemhild would always be protected, and the great warlord himself had to be baptized before Kriemhild would consider it, but both those conditions were met without reservation. The gold that had been stolen wasn't all of Kriemhild's gold. She had built her fortress and had countless hidden compartments and passageways, so she gave money to the church to always be praying over Siegfried's body. Kriemhild would say goodbye to her home twice in her life. The first time, she had been brimming with joy. She was excited to start out on a new adventure. To be a queen with a man she loved and who loved her completely. The second time, she wasn't so naive. All moves now were strategic. And it said something about her life that going to be the wife of a warlord in a foreign land was safer than remaining at home. There would be no more sighs. No forlorn glances back at worms. There was work to be done. The men of Burgundy, Gunther and Hagen in particular, didn't know that, in Attila's land, Kriemhild was making every effort to ingratiate herself with her new people. She showed respect and deference to the late queen, while being generous with her wealth. They didn't know how much the people loved her. All they knew was that there was a festival this summer, and I'm going to it, Gunther beamed. Y you can't be serious, Hagen replied. Remember all that not going to Hungary talk? Gunther said that that was 13 years ago. The messengers traveling across Europe only talked about how happy Kriemhild was. She had a five-year-old son with Attila. She couldn't possibly still be mad about Hagen murdering her first husband. Yes, yes she is, Hagen noted. She had a long memory when it came to revenge. Okay, well, I'm the king, and I can decide if I'm going, and I'm going, Gunther proclaimed. Their midsummer festival would be something that no king would pass up on anyway, and the fact that his sister was queen meant that it would be an insult if they didn't go. It was cool if Hagen was too scared. He was just Gunther's best general and personal protector. The men absolutely wouldn't think any less of him if he didn't go to protect his king. Hagen sighed. 
Gunther knew that wasn't true. So, you going? Hagen groaned. Yeah, yeah, he was. They got ready to go, and Hagen, knowing that it was a trap, outfitted a thousand knights for their fun summer vacation to Hungary. When they came to the Danube River, they found that it was flooded, so Hagen scouted up ahead. He looked down to the river and saw, of course, water fairies. Seeing the female fairies bathing in the cool river, the ever-classy Hagen knelt down and scooped up their clothes. The women swam to shore. Uh, could they have their clothes back? You know what? If he gave them their clothes back, they would tell Hagen how his trip to Hungary would go. Hagen asked how they knew about his trip to Hungary. The fairies pointed to themselves. Uh, supernatural water fairies. None of this should be surprising. The woman said that he was creeping them out looking at them like that. They wanted their clothes back. Did he want to know how this whole thing was going to go or not? Hagen pursed his lips. He was listening. One of the fairies swam up and said it would go so well. No one who ever went to another kingdom would win so much glory. Is there such thing as too much glory? Because that's what was in store for the Burgundians. Hagen nodded. You like to hear that. He tossed the women their clothes. And as soon as they were out of reach, the women started laughing. Hagen got a little worried. What's so funny? What's so funny is that we lied to you. Don't hold women's clothes hostage and then expect them to tell you the truth. Man, you're going to die. All of you. Actually, no, no, that's not true. The king's chaplain. That monk, you know, that guy? He'll survive. That's it, though. But even this won't deter you because you're going to ask, where's the nearest crossing? Hagen asked. These women were liars. He didn't believe them. They rolled their eyes. Sure, bud. They said a little ways up there's a ferryman. He was grumpy, but Hagen would figure it out. He would figure it out because they had to cross, because they were all going to die in Hungary. Hagen rolled his eyes, thanked the fairies for nothing, and walked to negotiate passage with the ferryman. And by negotiate, I mean he killed the ferryman, because this is the early Middle Ages. And the very next step from slight disagreement is apparently straight-up murder because it's totally reasonable to demand that one ferryman in one boat ferry 1,000 mounted warriors across a river. Nudging the body into the bushes, Hagen looked at the ferry. Huh, how hard could it be? At the very end of ferrying 1,000 mounted warriors across the raging Danube, only one man remained, and Hagen narrowed his eyes. It was the monk, Gunther's chaplain, the man boarded, and Gunther looked to the other bank, to the men who were setting up camp. No one was watching him. Hmm. Time to prove a prophecy wrong. Hagen spun around with the oar. Was the monk getting all settled? Whoops! Oh no! He accidentally knocked the monk overboard into the rushing river. Here, he would extend the oar. Oh no! He accidentally hit the monk on the head with it. He would try again. Oh no, another hit on the head. The monk went under. Ah, oh, so sad. Looks like those fairies lied. And then he saw it. The monk, on the opposite bank of the Danube, panting. The man dragged himself to the shore. He looked forlorn at the camp on the other side. 
and when Hagen started turning the boat around, he panicked and disappeared into the forest. He didn't need any of this. He was going home. It was then that Hagen realized that the monk would never cross the river. It was like the fairy said, he would never go to Hungary. Nah, but they were lying. Hagen and Gunther, they, they would be fine. We'll see what happens when they get to Hungary, which, yes, is Latin for the land of the Huns, but that will be right after this. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. How's it going? My name's Dietrich, a.k.a. Theodoric the Great. Dietrich, a.k.a. Theodoric the Great, greeted the arriving Burgundians. He said they didn't know this, but he was an exiled king from Verona, Italy, who had taken up with the Huns. He was actually a pretty famous hero, and there will be a lot of poems about him. Not as famous as this work, though. Anyway, they didn't need to get into remembering names this late into the third act. But he was just riding up to say that he wasn't from here. He didn't know Queen Krimhild that well, and he didn't have stakes in this, but something else was going on here. He wasn't sure what, and he knew that this was very much out of the norm, but they should keep their weapons on them in the kingdom. She hides it from Attila, the king, but Dietrich has heard that she still weeps for, and is super not over her ex. He was like, murdered by some guy named haagen or something? Hagen, Hagen corrected. Yeah, allegedly murdered. It was actually bandits. We never caught the guys who did it, though. Hmm, Dietrich inspected. And I bet you tried real hard to find the actual killers, didn't you? Yeah, you should definitely keep your sword on you. All right, everyone ready to go in? The knights that arrived with the royal family and Hagen were quartered outside of the city. So it was just Gunther, his brothers, Hagen, and a few dozen others of their best who made their way to greet Kremhild. Despite Dietrich's warning matching Hagen's, and, you know, everything Gunther knew about his sister, Gunther was still excited to see her. It had been over a decade, and she had landed on her feet. Everything would be fine. He thought that, up until they laid eyes on her. She stood above them, staring down and flanked by knights. Attila wasn't present yet, it was just her. She didn't address Gunther first, but Hagen, asking what he had brought as a gift when visiting a powerful queen. Was it the gold of the Nibelungs? Hagen was wide-eyed. He had 
No idea what she meant. He didn't know where that gold was. Creamhill narrowed her eyes. Really? You have no idea where the gold you stole was? Hagen smiled. Okay. You know what? Yeah. The gold? The gold was exactly where he had left it when he took those boats out and scuttled them in the middle of the Rhine. It was at the bottom of the river, forever beyond her reach. Gunther turned. Seriously? He was saying this now? But Hagen was undeterred. He knew what this was, and he wanted her to know that he knew what this was. He stepped forward. He did say that he brought her something, though. He turned and unsheathed the sword. It was Balmung, Siegfried's sword, the one that he had taken from the Nibelungs. Kremhild shook that, that sword. Gunther looked to Hagen. Seriously, what was he doing? That sword had been lost, taken by bandits, remember? Kremhild demanded to know why these men still had their swords with him. Hagen answered her. This sword was staying with him. It had been with him since the day Siegfried had died, and there it would remain until the day Hagen died. Hagen, you didn't tell me you found Siegfried's sword in the woods after we nearly died fighting off those bandits, Gunther said, winking. But no one was really buying it. Enough lies, Kremhild demanded, looking straight at Hagen. Fine. I killed him, Hagen spat. He was tired of this anyway. You told me exactly how, and I speared him through the back like an animal as he drank from the spring. There. Happy? Kremhild rose and Hagen nodded, glancing around to all the knights. What was she going to do? But then the meeting was over. So we doing a feast or... Gunther looked around the room. Kremhild had left out the back to some side room, one that now had a burly knight in front of the door. That made it very clear that this was not the exit for them. Hagen scanned the room seeing dozens of armed knights. Their own knights were just outside. He tapped his king. Let's get some fresh air. They finally met Attila at the feast. And he was super cool. Kremlin hadn't told him about the tense conversation she had with her people that morning. And Gunther, not wanting to admit that Hagen, and by extension he, had a hand in killing Siegfried, just kept quiet about that point. Attila didn't understand why everyone was on edge, but he got along with his new friends. The tension was cranked up that night when Hagen awoke with a start and grabbed his brother, Dankwork, pulling him outside just in time. In the street, hundreds of knights rode past, and when they saw Hagen and Dankwork sitting outside, ready to alert the rest of Gunther's men in the event of an attack, they continued riding. Hagen and Dankwork stayed outside the rest of the night. No one came back. The next day, at mass, Attila was surprised to see all of his guests not dressed up in fashionable, comfortable clothes, but in full suits of armor, wearing their weapons. They said that they always dressed like this for church. It was comfortable and they liked it. Don't ask questions. But Attila did have a question. He asked for his young son to come out and join them after mass. And he turned to his brother-in-law and all of his angry friends. And he said that the boy would grow up to be a strong, brave and honorable man, would they do him the honor of taking him back to the Rhinelands so he could grow up and learn their ways as well. Before Gunther could even respond, Hagen rose. He didn't think that was a good idea. 
On this, both he and Kriemhild agreed. They had already kind of muddled things, and Kriemhild didn't want her son living among people who murdered her ex. None of this was said, but Hagen just flat out refused. Attila was offended, but Gunther agreed with his noble. Seriously, they did not need this headache. There was a tournament after mass, and even though a Burgundian accidentally killed one of the Huns when his lance tip slipped, Attila kept his cool, not wanting to forsake the ancient custom of hospitality, where you can't harm guests, and guests can't harm you for fear of divine retribution. So Attila forgave the accident and called off all the knights who wanted to straight up murder the Burgundians. Gunther still felt secure with his thousands of men just outside of town. Even more had come from the Nibelungs and other allies. And so long as he had those knights, everything would be fine. What if you didn't have those knights? Dankwart, Hagen's brother asked later, covered in blood. Things outside of town kinda got away from him today. He had been out with the men, while Gunther and those closest to him were at the feast. And Kriemhild had been musing for a few days, wondering aloud, who would rid her of these troublesome Burgundians? Dietrich, remember that guy that we just met, and his mentor, Hildebrand declared that it was a hard pass on their part, but another rose to the challenge. And then he fell to the challenge, when, confronting Dankwart outside of town, Dankwart cut off his head. In a weekend full of people dropping lit matches around powder kegs, one finally went off. Despite the loss of their commander, the Huns charged the unwitting Burgundians and their allies, and they massacred them. Dankwart fought his way out and he alone escaped to tell Gunther of the betrayal, if it could be called that. I mean, Hagen has been pretty clearly egging them on since the start. Gunther and Hagen were still in their armor. All their men were. They looked at each other, and Gunther sighed. Well, Hagen was right. Let's go talk to the king. He has to answer for all of this. They heard shouts and sounds of swords clashing from just outside the city, and they marched to the main fortress, not knowing of the queen's request, the guards at the door let them in. Attila smiled when he saw the Burgundians come into the throne room. Hey guys, still wearing armor. Weird, how can I help you? They didn't answer. Hagen calmly waited for all of his men to get inside the room, turned around, and then he barred it from the inside. Then he calmly walked up to Attila and Kriemhild's young son, and cut his head off. Attila scowled. Kriemhild screamed. Gunther sighed. <sighs> Hagen went for the next honey saw, and Gunther reluctantly readied his warriors. There will be no compromise now. No escape. He readied his sword and charged. Attila barely made it from the room with his life as the Burgundians pushed forward. What guards remained in the room formed a ring around their king helping him to escape out the back door. He, Kriemhild, Dietrich, and a handful of others barred the back door from the outside, as yells of their countrymen turned to screams. And then, there was silence inside the fortress.
one of the Hunnish allies rushed back toward the line. Challenging them in single combat was a horrible idea. He had challenged Hagen because Kriemhild, who had no idea why her family had freaked out and killed everyone, promised whoever brought her the head of Hagen a shield piled with gold. Iring, a character introduced in one chapter, and who didn't even make it one chapter, came sprinting back with a spear stuck in his head. He was panicking because there was a spear in his head. His men looked at it. Do we take it out? Leave it in? Take it out? Leave it in? Uh, Take it out. They would take it out. They did so and watched the result. Oh, yeah. Should have left it in. Attila stood with thousands of knights just outside a spear's throw from the fortress. After they retreated, the Burgundians swept through the building and secured it and then dumped the bodies over the edge of the wall and speared anyone who wanted to stop their countrymen from being eaten by the carrion birds. This was pretty much the worst vacation ever at this point. Now, they were surrounded but unassailable. They had Attila's personal food stores and weapons. They could hold out for months. They informed Attila's men of all this, that they would continue to be a blight on the city for as long as they remained. They didn't have to remain, though. If they were allowed to leave in safety, if their horses and remaining men were prepared and set ready, and Attila's men stood at a safe distance, all this could be over. But even though Attila wasn't on the battlefield, Kriemhild was. The warriors were about to bring the request to their king, and Kriemhild stopped them. This was a slap in the face to the Huns. The visitors came here, killed them, robbed them, murdered the prince. And what, they were just going to be allowed to leave with impunity? She approached the wall, where her brother met her. It wasn't Gunther, but one of her other brothers. They had always been on good terms. He begged her to please, let them go. He was still young. He didn't want to die like this. In this land, a pang hit Kriemhild's heart she ignored it. This was the first time in 17 years that she had even been close to getting justice for Siegfried. She wouldn't let it go for him, for anyone. She gave the word, and the arrows flew. Inside, panic began to spread. Fire. Kriemhild had set the four corners of the fortress ablaze by peppering them with flaming arrows. Outside, Attila came running, Fire, seriously? He, ah, they just paid that place off. Well, looked like this thing would be over one way or another. He was right, but he didn't account for the Burgundians' new drink of choice. There were still bodies in the halls, and Hagen told his men to take heart. It was now down to burning to death or dying in battle, both of which had been almost completely avoidable at the start of this weekend. He said if his men needed courage, all they had to do was go to the nearest corpse. I guess pull out a straw, and then take a big slurp of human blood. Real quick, don't try this at home for many reasons. The men, though, found their courage bolstered somehow, and through burning doorways, stormed out into the night. Hagen woke up in the dungeon. He tried to rise, but the chains held him to the wall. His chainmail was covered in blood. Most of it wasn't his, 
some of it was. It had been a long night. When Dietrich finally knocked him unconscious with the pummel of his sword, Hagen knew that he and Gunther were all that remained of the Burgundians. Well, not all that remained. Kriemhild stood over him in the cell. Hagen spat at her feet. Give it back to me and you go home, she demanded. He shook his head. What was she talking about? The gold. The gold of the Nibelungs. Give it to me and you can go back to Worms, she demanded. Hagen laughed. This again. She knew what the answer would be. It was impossible. And even if it wasn't, he still wouldn't give it back to her. Not now. Without another word, Kriemhild left the room and went to the cell right next to Hagen. Hagen heard a, what? No, 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 no. And then nothing. Sometime later, Kriemhild returned and dropped it to the floor. So his eyes were looking into Hagen's. It was the head of Gunther, her own brother. She told him that now Hagen's failure was complete. Hagen looked at the head into the face of the one who had meant everything to him and his people, one he had killed for, one he would die for. He didn't try to stop her when she went for the sword, went for Balmung. It had been Siegfried's. There was a bit of poetic justice in that. She didn't pause, didn't hesitate. There was a cold, unflinching justice about how she did it. As Hagen's head thudded to the ground, Kriemhild let the sword drop. It was finished. Finally, the man she loved was avenged. The eagles had killed the falcon, but she had killed the eagles. Even though it cost her her family, her new kingdom, even her child, it had cost her everything. She stood victorious, but she stood alone. how the story wraps up in the reverse of how it opened. It starts with Kriemhild and her dream, and it introduces Hagen and Gunther. And it ends with Kriemhild standing alone, having just killed Hagen and Gunther. I like to end on her standing alone, coming to grips with her Pyrrhic victory. But that's not quite where the story ends. Just after she killed Hagen and her brother, Dietrich's mentor, Hildebrand, entered. And so shocked that she murdered those two guys who were trying to murder all of them, just like 20 minutes ago, Hildebrand took his impossibly sharp sword and killed Kriemhild. But in one version, he doesn't just kill her, but since his sword is so sharp, she can't feel it, and he slices her dozens of times through the torso, and then he tosses a ring to the ground. He then tells her she can have it if she picks it up for him. She gladly does so, and the surreptitiously diced princess thuds to a dozen pieces on the floor, thus ending the story of the Nibelungs, a story titled after a people who show up like twice, only to be massacred both times. The story is interesting, not just because it holds together reasonably well for a work of that time period, but because of how it reflects history. There was a Burgundian kingdom on the Rhine that was destroyed around this time, possibly by Huns, and the legends that arose from that event 
were a way to give motivations and reasons and a plotline to events that happened long in the past. It comes from a patchwork of oral tales that were written down by a poet who seemed both to want to look back at a violent past from a time of courtly manners and also minimize any sort of fun magic or supernatural events. Depending on how the sequels hold up, we might be revisiting this story later. I know that Dietrich gets a sequel of sorts, and there are numerous plot threads left hanging. Like, what's up with the two princes in the Netherlands and worms? And whatever happened to Brunhild, who just said her piece and then faded into the woodwork? Those won't be questions we answer next week, though. Because next week, there will be some fun magical events from Chinese folklore, like dragon fights and talking birds. Well, okay, one bird. And it's a parrot, but it's like a, a smart parrot. Check it out, you'll see. The creature this week is the Strong Toad, from Chilean folklore. Okay, so the Strong Toad is a glow-in-the-dark, carnivorous, and functionally invulnerable big toad with a turtle shell on its back. Which is cool, but it's also a hypno-toad. Yes, the Strong Toad's eyes have the ability to hypnotize any other life form away or toward the creature, or if the Strong Toad gets a TV show. The thing that keeps the Strong Toad from taking over the universe is that it's just a toad. It might have a shell that makes it pretty much invincible, and I realize that pretty much invincible is not invincible, but when it sees a human or something else that could be a predator, it just tells the creature to get as far away as possible. So if you're ever walking in the woods and see a toad and blinking you're 10 miles away, you just had a run-in with the strong toad. The strong toad is a simple toad. All it's looking for is a good meal. With other traditional foods, like insects, and other not-so-traditional foods, like mice, the toad will just tell them to get in its mouth. And they do. And they get eaten. If you find yourself setting the dinner table for a toad one evening, and have no idea how that happened, congrats! You've been chosen by the strong toad. You now have a pet that will keep away pests, and can also manipulate you to give it everything you have, with you being powerless to stop it. If you do want to stop it, it has one weakness. Fire. I don't know why fire, but fire. But you have to be sure to reduce it to ash, for obvious reasons, because the last thing you want is an angry, half-burned toad that can control you with its mind. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to Magoosh for sponsoring us this week. Magoosh is an online test prep that provides students with the flexibility to study from home, with tons of practice questions, study schedules, video lessons, and a free app. Plans are affordable, and Magoosh offers a score improvement guarantee. If you don't improve, you'll get your money back. Visit magoosh.com, that's M-A-G-O-O-S-H, and enter the promo code MYTHS for a 20% off discount. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.